Hi, you're listening to Stefan Levera Podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. This show is brought to you by Swan Bitcoin, the easy way to buy Bitcoin and also learn about Bitcoin. Now, do you have any friends or family in your life who you really want to give the gift of Bitcoin? Swan Bitcoin makes it easy to do this. So you can give a gift of Bitcoin. Your friend or family member will receive an email and they will get your custom message inside the email and they can then claim that gift. They can create their account and convert the USD value into Bitcoin. Now, you're not just giving the gift of Bitcoin, you're also giving the gift of Swan's world-class education and customer service. So this is a great way to help your friend or family member go down that Bitcoin pathway and take the orange pill. If you're interested, go to swan.com gift. Do you need an easy way to set up and take lightning payment? Voltage can help you. They are paving the way as the leading enterprise-grade lightning solution for anyone building on layer two. So whether you are an entrepreneur or you're working at a company or maybe you have friends who are running a company and you want them to accept Bitcoin, get them to check out Voltage. Voltage can help you by making it easy to spin up your Bitcoin node, your lightning node, or your BTC pay server node. Voltage helps to integrate lightning and payment infrastructure into your solution and you don't have to waste time with maintenance and integration you can just deploy and iterate faster so whether you want to route payments build your small business or scale an enterprise company voltage is the answer don't stumble on your own infrastructure go and get started at voltage.cloud Lend at HodlHodl is a peer-to-peer Bitcoin-backed lending platform. So you can use this platform to go into an over-collateralized loan where you put up some Bitcoin and you borrow stable coins against your Bitcoin. This is done in a peer-to-peer way where people go and put up their offers or accept the offers that another person has put up. And so you can select the terms, the interest rate, and how much you're looking to borrow, and you can find a counterparty. And with this setup, you are not rehypothecating. It's all over-collateralized and fully reserved. Also, Hoddle Hoddle are the operators of Baltic Honey Badger, which is one of the big Bitcoin conferences in Europe. This will be in Latvia in early September. So go and check that out. The website is BalticHoneyBadger.com and you can also check out the platform Lend.HoddleHoddle.com. So for today's episode, my friend Tua Demista rejoins me on the show. For those of you who don't know him, he's a longtime author, analyst in the space, and he is a former fund manager also. So we chat about his views in terms of macroeconomics, interest rates, deleveraging, trying to make money in Bitcoin terms, as well as this question of the panic of 1907 and some of the parallels with Bitcoin today. We also chat a little bit about full reserve banking models as contrasted with fractional reserve banking and whether this Bitcoin bear market will last long. Tua, welcome back to the show. Hey, Stefan, how's it going? Going well. It's uh, been a, a wild week or two in Bitcoin land and, uh, you know, this is so much going on. So I uh, wanted to chat with you as well. Uh, you know, you've been uh, tweeting some stuff out and sharing some insights as well. But uh, let's first get your view on where things are. You know, actually, this might be an interesting question. Would you say in the last few weeks is when we realized we are actually in a bear market? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I I was surprised. And I think many other people were too. And uh, I think I might have been a bit blind to the amount of leverage that uh, built up in the system. It's just like, I don't know, like, I just, I don't like counterparties that that do risky stuff and that are hard to, you know, figure out. And, um, and I mean, I think it's just also in general, you know, you stick with what you know, and if you've been in the space for a while, like there are certain companies, you know, and trust. And, um, so there's like, even today, I was just like reading about, um, I, I, f- I forget the name now, Voyager. Voyager it's like yeah. some large exchange like I've never heard of. So it turns out these guys have been uh, doing fractional reserve banking and are probably getting in trouble now. So, yeah, I mean, it was a a surprise to me. Like, I knew things were bad, but, man, things were worse than I thought. Like, after I kind of, you know, recovered from, like, a slight heart attack, like, what's going on here? I feel really good about this. Like, this is, like, creative destruction at work. And uh, it's, it's I think it's a kind of a, you know, it's going to be painful for a lot of people. But I think it's a needed cleansing before we can actually go off the races. And, And the beautiful thing about the Bitcoin ecosystem is that, we can actually delever. Like there are no too big to fails. Like just, you know, we had Mt. Gox, which at the time custodied or was supposedly custodying uh, 7% of all Bitcoin in circulation. So, so you know, Bitcoin survived just fine. So th- there is almost, there is no magnitude of, of, a, of a, like a Wall Street type crisis that Bitcoin could not survive. 
And, uh, and so in, in doing that now, I think we're setting ourselves up for this decoupling that Bitcoin is going to decouple from traditional markets and, and just skyrocket out of this dust cloud because other markets are in trouble too. Like if you're in Bitcoin, it's like easy to think like, oh, you know, it's just us. But like the, there's a lot of trouble on the horizon for um, traditional markets. So, so that's my thesis. You know, this is a panic and uh, this is healthy. And uh, this is setting us up for some incredible rallies the next few years. And to your point around correlation and decorrelation or decoupling, as you said, this was a common argument for years and years is Bitcoin is not correlated with other things. And in recent years, maybe the last one or two years, that correlation was stronger with traditional markets, say the stock market. So then am I right to read you as saying that that decorrelation will come back? Yeah. Every time, you know, it's like every time a lot of people say like, oh, Bitcoin is so correlated, this and that. It's like, I mean, okay, well, then just express stock markets in Bitcoin and look at what you see. And of course, you can see, you know, it it does tend to go like there's this um, this sideways triangle pattern that you see. So it does tend to go in a range, trade in a range for a while. But then Bitcoin has that rally that, you know, sets your hair on fire. And that's where everybody else is left behind, you know, and that that just has happened over and over. And it makes sense because Bitcoin is, you know, superior money and, and it's being adopted and we're in a, we're in a monetary crisis globally. So um, it just makes a lot of sense that that and, and but the only thing is that traders tend to just look at the short term. And so in a way they create that tension and then it coils up and eventually it explodes higher. And with the broader markets, it's probably also fair to say that there's not a lot that people are happy sitting in right now, because even someone who is doing the 60-40 stocks and bonds, they're not really that happy right now. A lot of other assets and other kinds of markets that people are investing into are just not doing that well, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I saw um, I saw a graph um, a few days ago um, looking at the performance of the 60-40 portfolio, and uh, it's it's been worse than I think any time since 2008, I think it was like minus 15%. So I, I don't know if your listeners are, uh, are all familiar with 60-40. The idea is like 60% in, in uh, stocks and then 40% in bonds. And the idea is that when stocks go down, people are going to hide in safe haven assets like cash and bonds. And so then the bonds are going to go up and compensate for your loss. But so bonds are going down. So that's a weird thing and like people are starting to have to look into uh, I, I saw this real estate guy um like a const- uh, real estate construction specialist and he was like uh trying to like look back in historical data like oh what happens when inflation goes up what happens to housing and like he had this data set that started in 1990 it's just like no you got to look further back <laughs> like inflation look at the 70s like look at the 40s like you got to like do your homework you can't just this is not like business as usual so anyway people are being like woken up and like the word stagflation like we're gotta like we gotta like take it off the shelf and dust it off and like what is that oh it's like stagnation plus inflation you know so so because uh the past 30 years Inflation has always been correlated with, you know, growth in the stock market. And the reason is that the Fed and everybody else has been stimulating consumption and that stimulates stocks. Uh, but now uh, people are starting to tighten the belt. Uh, they're stop. They're slowing down their spending. And at the same because of inflation. So that's when you get that stagflation beast on stage, you know, and, and uh, everybody needs to update their their models. Right. And as you were saying, with updating models, a lot of people were working in this paradigm where stocks and bonds, one would zig, the other would zag. But it seems what we're seeing now is because yields, bond yields are rising, then bond prices are going the other way. And so that is unfortunate if you are holding bonds. And so that is going to force a lot of people to really stop and stop and think. And so, of course, It'll take time for people to recognize what's a better thing. Uh, but in your eyes, how do you see people coming around? To, do you see, you know, like we don't think they're immediately just going to come around to Bitcoin. It's obviously going to take some time. How do you see that process happening for, let's say, the traditional investors? Yeah, there's a lot of bargaining happening. Like people being like, oh, but what if I just, you know, go to defensive stocks or like, you know, look at the 1970s and, 
you know, dividend stocks did, did well then and energy stocks and like Warren Buffett is now, I don't know how much he's plowing into oil stocks, but it's it's a lot. And I, I don't think those are bad ideas necessarily. Definitely better ideas than, you know, real estate or bonds. Like, but like the the amount, you can just see that the the spectrum of potential investments, like that is just narrowing. We're starting to get like tunnel vision uh, in, in a kind of a, necessary tunnel vision because you know this is a this is a systemic uh, crisis that we're in and and more and more candidates are falling off the wayside and so for example even like you know land like people think like oh but land surely must be a good inflation hedge and the data does i don't think supports that you know maybe very mild inflation is fine and of course you know at least if you have land you're going to be left with something and not nothing so you're better off uh, with some farmland than with some Celsius tokens, you know, or Luna tokens or whatever. Like, yeah, of course, it's something. Uh, but is it going to keep up with inflation? I don't think so. I don't think the next five or 10 years are going to are going to help you with that. Is it going to be better than like some some real estate development in the middle of nowhere that was hyped up? Like, yeah, of course, you know, like there are like there's nuance in all this. Um, but yeah, I think Bitcoin is. I think what what needs to happen and has not happened yet um, is that Bitcoin needs to be considered to be its own category, separate from all these, you know, shitcoins, NFTs, all these protocols that are either centralized or don't have anything new to offer. I think that has been hindering adoption of Bitcoin. And now we have what three, what was three trillion dollars in like the whole crypto cap. Now it's back to like one trillion. And uh, and Bitcoin is is winning, right? It's like it's like the meteor fell, and uh, all these dinosaurs are really struggling, and like Bitcoin has been the hardy uh, the hardy rat that survives, uh, and then that can grow into a new a new era. So I think I think this is what's happening now, and like as Bitcoiners, like not that we have any responsibility, but I think that probably now is an important time to like let our message be heard because people I think are more listening now. Like it's like oh, like you can't just buy an index of crypto and say oh I'm diversified. Like if there's nine scams in there, it's not going to help you. So it's an exciting time. I mean I feel like there's more signal now than before, and also you can actually talk about scams. Like I feel like I'm. You know, some of the some of the Ethereum maxis are are a little bit less vocal than they were a couple months ago, and so it's it just feels safer to come out and and say some things. Sure. And do you have any predictions in terms of what happens with Ethereum, you know, relative to Bitcoin? Right. Just I guess just for context. So Ethereum's all time high in Bitcoin terms was something around 0.15 BTC around 2017, and I believe their recent high in this cycle was something around 0.08 or so BTC. Um, so I'm curious if you have any thoughts on Ethereum uh, in Bitcoin terms, do you think that they're going to try to change the narrative to try to pump it again? Or are they going to try to say, oh, proof of stake is here, look how good it is? Or you've seen this narrative as well around so-called ultrasound money. Do you have any uh, thoughts to add on those? Yeah, let me just pull up a, a chart here just to jog my own memory. Um, yeah, it's like I thought. So you're right. I mean, the 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 recent high was 0 0.087, almost like 0 0.089, almost in in Ethereum. That was like uh, late 2021. That was their kind of like the peak of the NFT craze, I think. And uh, and so it's dwindled down, and now we're like flirting with um, some support at 0 0.05. And I think 0 0.05 fits with a long term uptrend. And so they better defend that. And I think the traders probably know it, that that's an important level. I think if they lose it, like, I mean, the next level down is 0 0.036, but even that is not very, not very strong support. I think it could be game over. Like, I think weirdly, sometimes people hide the truth in plain sight. And so when Vitalik wrote his article, Endgame, I think, you know, that'll be the beginning of the end. And looking back, you know, uh, I don't think they have another ace up their sleeve you know they've played so many so many hype narratives over the past 6 years i, I don't think the public is going to believe it the next time around uh especially like what are they doing now like second layer ethereum like just do it on bitcoin already like you know if you're going to go second layer which they've always were against they were like no 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 we're about on chain scaling if you're going to build a second layer you're admitting defeat 
So let's just do, and also all this crazy front running of these smart contracts. Like, I mean, how insane is that? Like, you know, like millions and millions of dollars that you can just see that is transparent for the whole world to see. Like, so, so it's just inviting just very bad practices. And it reminds me of, you know, the, I think we've talked about this before, but like the domain name market where um, objectively, if you study those markets, there is much more fraud happening on non.com domain names like .science or .ru or .eu uh, comparatively to .com. And of course, in that area, it's for sure that it doesn't have anything to do with technology. It's just purely the price mechanism. Like, you know, you have to pay more for a .com name. And so you're going to want to invest more long-term resources and likely have a more honest approach than if you can just... Uh, rotate and come up with a new name over and over because these names are super cheap, like pizza.eu or whatever, like insurance.eu, that name is probably way cheaper than uh, insurance.com. So anyway, I just see the same thing in the in the world of shitcoins where it's so easy to just rotate. And, and I mean, Dan Larimer is the king of that. Like you just launch a new coin whenever you have a new idea and, and hope that people forget about your previous ventures. So anyway, I, I just think that it's um, it's showing, you know, that, that Bitcoin is a more robust platform in, in many ways. And now slowly smart contracts are, are going to also start shining on Bitcoin. And so earlier we were talking about the leverage that had been built up in the system and perhaps even people inside this quote unquote industry weren't quite aware of the level of Leverage. So maybe you could just expand a little bit on that and perhaps what we've seen over the last month or so with the everything that's blowing up. Yeah, so there were these funds. That's also, you know, these hedge funds. So they are like proprietary, like the like a hedge fund basically is when you manage money for friends. Like that's the idea. And so you have less accountability. You need to be less transparent because you only take money from high net worth people because you don't like actively market your fund that that's the original idea of a hedge fund and so you have all this all this stuff happening and there's no way to audit what's going on by the way i don't think this model is bad like i ran a small hedge fund like i don't think this model is bad but it just kind of explains how it's hard to know how much what is going on in the market uh, uh, until it unravels like it's like what warren buffett says like when the tide recedes that's that's when you see who's been swimming naked yeah and so so we had uh, this, these algorithmic stable coins collapsing, which was predictable. Um, and then they were uh, invested in by Three Arrows Capital, and then they started to collapse. And then um, there were these shops that were offering people yield on their Bitcoin, which we can talk about because I tried to do that with my fund. It's very, very hard to do. And uh, like BlockFi, Celsius, you know, and and so they are starting to really get in trouble because they were writing out unsecured loans to these hedge funds that were pretending like, oh, we're going to make you such and such returns. So it's all kind of there's a lot of contagion and, and the buck stops with proper due diligence, like parties that are conservative, that do proper due diligence are not, uh, you know, it's not like it's not like an actual virus. Like, you know, you can actually just have some sound policies and avoid contagion. That probably explains why some platforms are blowing up that you and I have never heard of. It's like, what? So I think one of the parties that is that is uh, also heard, are also hurting that is a little bit less talked about is the Bitcoin miners. I don't know how reliable this is, but I, uh, I sent you, um, yeah, it was Nick Carter who had this. Um, yeah, so this is basically Bitcoin supply held by a refined uh, in stars set of one hop miners so maybe if you could just explain that uh metric for people well <laughs> to be honest i don't know exactly what the, a refined set of one hop miners means I, I assume it means that that they mine the coins and then the, the coins are not moved more than one step like just to their own cold storage because otherwise if they mine it and send it to an exchange which would be two hops well then you don't know is it going to be sold is it held in cold storage but at least the miners that have their own proper uh, cold storage system set up. then so it's, this is kind of like miners that maybe do it right, that have their own cold storage, or at least the ones that we are sure that haven't sold. So there was about 75,000 Bitcoin held in that supply in the late summer, like only two months ago, there was like 75,000 Bitcoin held by miners. 
and that has now declined to about 55,000 Bitcoin. And, and, and it seems like we're seeing every day like news of miners selling more Bitcoins. And I agree with Nick that uh, before we can actually say Bitcoin is ready for another rally, we need to see this deleveraging continue because what miners do, and I know this because I invested in a, um, a mining company back in back in the day, uh, 2013, 14. What you uh, what you do is you you develop uh, mining machines or in this case, often you just buy them. You have a bunch of mining machines. Uh, you put them in a warehouse and then you have a contract with both the warehouse and an electricity provider. And so these contracts need to be paid. Like, so it's, and, and either you have a whole bunch of dollars and you use that, or you just immediately sell the Bitcoin that you mine. Or if you're really bullish on the market, you pay all that stuff with borrowed money and you keep all the Bitcoin. And then you're like, oh, this is perfect. You know, as long as the market goes up, it's perfect. But once the market goes down, not only the newly Bitcoins that you mine are worth less, so you might actually be mining at a loss on a day-to-day -day basis, but also the stash that you saved is worth less and less. And so in order to de-risk, in order to avoid going bankrupt, I, I believe we will see bankruptcies in the mining space, but in order to avoid that, you just got to sell Bitcoin and there's just no choice. Like you just have to do it. So I think I think miners are definitely, you know, they are like, they boost the price on the way up because they hoard Bitcoins and then they kind of, push the price further down on the way down because they're like, in this case, they're forced to sell. I think it's just a sign that we're not in a very mature market yet because what miners should do is they should hedge with derivatives to prevent this kind of scenario from happening. Like they should, they should have better hedges, but you know, it's a young space. So it's inevitable that something like this happens. Yeah. So there's lots there. I think one term that's been thrown around is uh, this idea of pro-cyclical. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's this idea that miners are, pro-cyclical because they're hodling and, you know, in the bull market, everything looks good and they're just borrowing against their coins. And even in uh, in recent years, we've seen miners do this whole idea of borrowing against their coins. And that became a lot more prominent in, let's say, this recent cycle. They get high on their own supply. Yeah, right. And so, and, and it's not just that, that they would get loans against not just Bitcoin, but loans against their ASIC miners. Uh, but then the dynamic can become even more difficult because if that if quote-unquote crypto bank that gives them that loan is now stuck on the other side with these mine, ASIC mining machines that have also come down in price, we've seen a bear yep. market in ASIC mining rigs uh, over the you know, recent few months. So it's kind of all of these factors are kind of coming together at the worst possible time. And of course, uh, you know, there's always been cycles in Bitcoin and this is part of it. And as you were saying, uh, and I think that, I've heard people use this term colloquially, this idea of, oh, this miner is going to puke out their coins, right? Because they were, let's say, too levered or not conservative enough in whatever other way, you know? And I think it's an interesting dynamic as well because it's highly competitive. So you might see a lot of, let's say, big public miners or even not public miners go and do all this stuff. And then other miners look at other miners and say, hey, well, I'm competing with them to, say, buy ASIC rigs or I'm competing with them to get rack space or set up a mining area facility and so you can sort of understand where maybe the competitive uh, aspect uh, and maybe when everything's in a bull market everything everything just looks like it's a good idea but actually when once right. the bear market comes that's when things turn yeah and also the value of these machines like you would think like oh a bitcoin mining company like they have this big space and it's like well the warehouse they probably rent so that's not theirs and then the machines then they have people, but the people are skilled at mining. Like that doesn't mean that that's, you can just, you know, they can just switch to do something else right away. And then you have the machines that they can be bricked. Like if the price goes low enough and the Bitcoin, they can always produce Bitcoin, of course, but it could be that they actually operate at a loss depending on the electricity cost. So in a bear market, nobody's going to want to buy your machines, at least not for any decent price. Like they'll give you pennies on the dollar. Yeah, it's just something that the mining space is going to have to figure out. Like in order to survive cycles, because they're going to keep coming, there needs to be some idea of like how to how to hedge or how to diversify in a way that you stay robust, that you can stay uh, operating, keep operating in uh, in a bear environment. Even this short crisis, I think, is really making them sweat. 
we can talk about it more, but I think this is not going to be like a protracted bear market. Ah, interesting. So, uh, yeah, so as, as you were saying, miners might be, well, some miners might be in a position where they have to puke not only their coins, but also their machines. Like, so if they're, if they're in real trouble, they might have to suck. Yeah, and, and in a way they can pass on the buck, right? Because if they pledge the mass collateral, and uh, then it's then the problem is these guys it's like the uh, lender now. The lender, <laughs> the lender is the one. Yeah, and the lender is because yeah. then you can say like, all right, you can pick up my collateral, and then they just come collect a bunch of bricks. Yeah, right. And so the other aspect of it is maybe there's there was this bull dynamic causing extreme risk and leverage in the system, right? So people putting out offering interest rate and yield because everyone's starved for yield in the normal financial system. They're getting under 1% or paying negative rates in Europe on their normal bank savings account. So they're running into these so-called crypto markets, seeing, oh, look at all the yields that I can get if I just put my uh, money with this provider. And so I wonder as well, are there questions to be raised there around the business model? Is it that the business model is sound, but people just went crazy with it? Uh, or do you think that maybe there's some fundamental problem with you know, yield uh, being offered? Yeah, it's really interesting how people bring their own biases to the Bitcoin space. Um, what was the other example I was thinking of? So you saw it in yield. Oh, yeah. So in, in when I first got in, involved in Bitcoin, pretty quickly, uh, there was this mining craze in like 2013. Like the price was going up, but so many people were just like, oh, I'm going to order mining rigs. And, it's, um, you know, and I think that came because they're not used to a hard asset. They're not used to actual scarcity. Like they, they're just been conditioned to believe that in order to make money, your money has to work. Like Warren Buffett always says, like, yes, you know, your money have to work for you. Or like Kevin O'Leary used to be like, oh, my money is like little soldiers. And I, I send them out to war and then they fight and they bring back the loot, you know? So that was like how people got kind of hoodwinked into investing dollars uh, into mining rigs that never arrived or that didn't didn't do it for them versus just buying scarce bitcoins and so i think similarly the new the new generation of of bitcoiners uh, a lot of them were conditioned that you got to make your money work for you and you need to like find a yield somehow kind of not sitting down and being like hey but well like if my money is actually scarce i don't need interest to compensate for the dilution every year i don't need that i can just kind of focus on keeping it safe so i think it's a little bit easy to say like oh people are just greedy it's just like uh, i don't know you know there's there's a variety of factors at play i'm trying to remember your question right and uh, well i was talking about the business models of the yield like it could be that maybe if if you are offering if you're a business offering some yield that maybe the business model is not inherently bad but maybe people went overboard with the risk and the leverage yeah uh and that maybe if you were much more tamped down about exactly what scenarios you would loan for uh as opposed to what we were seeing in you know and what we're seeing blow up now i'm curious uh, do you have any thoughts on that idea like is the business model inherently bad or is it just that the market just went crazy with risk and leverage yeah, I think the um, there is something to be said, and I think there will be an entire industry built around lending Bitcoin for a fixed amount of time, and then getting it back with interest. Like that's a traditional loan, um, a deposit contract you ought to pay for. Which sounds weird, but like if you park your car in a parking garage, you pay. If there's a parking garage that says, "Hey, we're gonna pay you to park your car with us." That's weird, right? It might mean that on the other side of the parking garage, there's a sign cars for rent and they're going to like rent out your car while you're just on vacation, like, you know, and then it comes back damaged and whatnot. So, so those are two very different industries traditionally and only the past hundred years with the, with, with uh, central banks being able to bail out banks, have those models been fused into what we now know as banking where you, you know, they're both a lending intermediary and they're a deposit depository institute or whatever you call it, a custodian. Uh, and those models are antithetical. Like you, you cannot blend them without blowing up. But and, you know, unfortunately, people are not educated. So they just think that this is how banking works. Uh, but so in terms of being in a lending intermediary, or you could do a hedge fund, right, where you, you accept an investment and then there is only certain conditions where 
uh, liquidity becomes available. Like that's how that's how you do it. It's like you know you you are locked in for one year, and then if you put in the request, you have to wait sixty or ninety days, and then you know even then we can pay you just to just so that uh, to compensate for the fact that you're investing in longer term assets, longer term um, contracts. So so then when you get to the nitty gritty, like how do you actually make a yield? Well, the, the, the most straightforward thing is that you're going to lend it out like you're, you know, you're receiving the Bitcoin that people want to invest and then you're going to lend it out to other parties. And so what we're seeing now is how wrong that can go. Like if you lend to Bitcoin miners, for example, that can go really wrong. Uh, if you lend to other hedge funds, that can go wrong. That can go to zero. If you lend to a shitcoin, that can go wrong. If you invest it. It can go either way. Like if you buy another token, it can go up or down. What I did with my um, little hedge fund back in 2019 was we used the Bitcoin that was deposited in our fund as collateral. And then we borrowed some dollars against that. And then we bought some more Bitcoin with that. So we would like slightly lever up. And the idea would be that if we were right, that Bitcoin was undervalued and the price would go up, then you have a dollar profit, you sell those Bitcoin at some point and you pay back the loan or whatever's left. That's your pure alpha. That's your alpha on top of Bitcoin. But that was, to me at least, that was so stressful and scary, even with the conservative leverage that uh, we had and, you know, with the metrics in place and, and all that and being right with timing, you know, I was I was right, you know, like to launch the fund at um, $10,000 Bitcoin uh, was the right time in 2019. But even so, like I, I lost so much sleep over it, just worrying like what if a black swan event happens and the market goes against us in a matter of a week or two weeks. And so I ended up for that reason, you know, and maybe also because my personality I found out is not fit to deal with that kind of stress. I uh, wound down the fund. We had in the end, uh, even though markets were really volatile, because uh, it went, I don't know if you remember, but like 2019, like price went to 5,000 to 15,000, like it was bouncing all over the place. So we ended up with like a 4% loss in Bitcoin. And I felt terrible. I thought I had, it was like, this is terrible. I really needed time to kind of like, all right, you know, what, what basically to not double down. So that was, that's hard, right? I, like I, Being in that position where you're down, you're kind of like not doing your job, strictly speaking, because you're meant to be better than the market. So then you can choose to either double down and try to make up for it or you wind it down. And so that's what I did. And, and it was it was a hard decision to 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 do that. Um, but so, you know, seeing Murat's fund, I forget the name of it, like they collapsed in 20 early 2020. I think uh, what was the name again? I think it was adaptive capital, adaptive right? capital. Yeah. So they collapse. And then especially now seeing three arrows and the other funds, seeing them go to zero. I feel a lot better about like having lost 4% um, and trying that strategy. But so, yeah, just from experience, it's very, very hard to make a yield in Bitcoin. I think there is something to be said if you lend to a market maker like that is pretty safe. Like if you lend to like a square, right, like they, they just need they're like a vending machine. So they need inventory to sell the Bitcoin and they immediately buy more once they but they need a bit of inventory. Uh, or like even a, a gambling website, like back in the day, like Satoshi Dice or, you know, the house needs money and then you you, you kind of just pay it out. But statistically, you know that you're fine uh, or any Bitcoin exchange like they they also similarly need a pot of money to kind of um, pay out fees and deal with that. And oh, sorry. And also lend to people that lever. Right. So that that's a, a kind of a safe way to do it, especially if you only do it in Bitcoin, because the most liquid market, uh, if you lend to people that lever up, you can pretty much always liquidate them if you have, you know, safe margins and if you have your system set up. So uh, but the problem is that it's it's so lucrative and reliable that most of these operators have their own Bitcoin to do that with. So anyway, so it's just like uh, I wish I had better news, but you know, if you're looking to make more than one or two percent per year, it's going to be really hard unless you're going to do active trading and have some kind of leverage strategy. Right? can blow up. Yeah, so it's it's um, Bitcoin is hard money, and um, yeah, it, it encourages saving and not so much uh, yield generation. Back to the show in a moment. 
taking control of your Bitcoin keys is a key step in improving your security, but also a big responsibility. This is where Unchained Capital can help. Unchained offers concierge onboarding. This is a personalized service to help guide you from Bitcoin security beginner to a pro. Over a video call, a member of Unchained's team will help you set up multi-signature cold storage, even if you've never held your own keys before. They ship the required devices to you. They walk you through the setup at your own pace and help with withdrawals from exchanges and cover any questions you have during the process. After you've completed onboarding, Unchained continue to provide you with close guidance and support to help you get comfortable with your new vault setup. So if you're aware you need to improve your security, but you've been putting it off, this is a great way to do it. Go and book your onboarding today. The website is unchained.com slash concierge, and you'll get a discount by using the code Levera. Those of you interested in Bitcoin mining, Brains.com are the creators of Brains OS Plus. This is firmware that you can install on your ASIC mining machine to give you some additional efficiency and you can basically get more bang for your buck. There are some miners who are improving their efficiency by as much as 25%. So it's a real no-brainer. Just go to the website and check that your models, your Bitcoin mining models are supported. And don't forget, if you point your hash rate towards slush pool, you also get the benefit of a zero percent pool fee so you can use brains os plus and slush pool there in that combination and don't forget those of you interested in running some calculations mining profitability or just assessing the bitcoin mining space they've also got a great analytics dashboard which you can find over at insights.brains.com the cold card is my favorite Bitcoin hardware signing device. You can get this at coinkite.com. And the cold card has all sorts of different features. You can use it with a micro SD card to air gap your device. You can use it in single signature mode. You can also use BIP85, which allows you to generate child seeds for either yourself or for your family and friends. And all you have to do then is record the index number of the seed that you did. So that way, if you've got a friend or a family member who you know they're just gonna lose their keys, well, this can help you by helping them by rec by recalling which index number you gave for that person. So there's all sorts of features that you can learn about. Go and order your cold card over at coinkite.com. And don't forget, you can also order your metal seed backup products there also. Now back to the show. Right. And I think that's a good point. And the way I'm interpreting you there, then it's saying essentially that it's not that the overall business model is totally flawed. It's just no, that the yeah. actual return and the sustainable yield that's possible without taking like very, very high levels of risk is a lot lower than what people were perhaps being promised. And certainly not the lunar UST anchor protocol with 20% return, obviously not sustainable. And so I think perhaps what's happened is this competitive desire in the market and you know people are having to offer more and more and more to attract in the retail money to put their deposits in and then unfortunately there was a lot of risk being hidden in there that people were not really thinking that through unfortunately for them and so i think it also Sorry, i would add the the what is what is flawed is fractional reserve banking as a model because you cannot promise perpetual availability of your coins and a yield because by definition to create the yield you have to let the bitcoin leave your own facility and lend them out or whatever so there's gonna it's called maturity mismatch like there's gonna be a mismatch uh, and so that means that when there is a bank run you're gonna you know uh, uh, look at the movie a beautiful life you know that that's a bank run people cannot access their money that's what we're seeing now in voyager they're like reducing the amount of money that you can withdraw to me that's dishonest it's like Either you have a lockup and, and you're transparent about the risk or you're just a pure custodian, you're boring and you charge money for custody. Like that's what I think is what it should be. Of course, yeah. So this, this also very deeply gets to that question of should the industry tolerate rehypothecation? Should the industry tolerate fractional reserve banking? And obviously I think you and I are probably aligned on this idea that no, we should just be operating in a full reserve banking world. And of course, there's a big debate about this, right? In the Austrian world, people like Bob Murphy will debate people like George Selgin on this exact question, right? On the question of does fractional reserve banking cause financial instability? And so this also brings us to that question around arguably what one of the, one of the guiding motivations behind Bitcoin. Satoshi put this message about chancellor is on the brink of um, bailout, right? Sec chancellor on the brink of second bailout. And so I think that also brings to mind this whole question about who is the one to do bailouts. And this, I think, perhaps is what causes people 
historically to cry out for some kind of entity that's going to do the bailouts, right? Namely, the Federal Reserve or, you know, the government intervention. And I think this is probably a good spot as well. You had a thread on um, Panic of 1907. So do you want to tell us a little bit about what happened here? Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, if you read the Wikipedia page, it's a little bit confusing, like what actually went on here, because that's, it's so tempting to just be like, oh, yeah. And so which, by the way, is true, like there was a, um, there was a a bank, the uh, Knickerbocker Bank, one of the largest banks at the time. And they invested kind of in the three arrows capital of 1907. They they invested in, in a a fund that was like, hey, we are spotting this opportunity and you're going to make you know this return on your money. And the strategy of that fund was they were going to um, squeeze the shorters. Like there was a bunch of people short this copper company. And so they were going to be like, let's just go in and buy lots of those shares and we'll squeeze out the shorts and make a, like a, a really hefty profit. And it went wrong. And so the thing went wrong. That whole scheme imploded. The whole fund imploded. And as a consequence, the Knickerbocker ba- uh, Knickerboxer Bank, which apparently was too overlevered, they went under. And then there was contagion, similar to today. So I think that the you know the point that matters is not the exact details of like what was the spark, but it's like no, there was a forest fire. And why did it happen? Because there hadn't been a forest fire for a long time, but also because uh, growth had been incredible in the U.S which I think we can, I think that's where there's a valid analogy with the Bitcoin space. We've had so much growth. People are starting to assume that we're going to keep growing the next month, the next six months. And that's where the leverage comes in. That's when people get greedy and they do, they're less diligent with their, um, with their research. And, um, and as, so I think that's, that's what happened. Uh, and just to kind of validate my point about how the economy of the U.S. had been growing, up to the point of kind of um, arrogance, you could say. Uh, in the 40 years from 1890 to 1930, this is like the golden age of the, the gold standard. You know, the 40 years from 1890 to 1930, the popul... Oh, sorry, but I'm just noticing it's 1930. But so to give an idea, like it's that period of very high growth. The population of the country doubled. The value of farm property increased three and a half times. Pig iron production increased four and a half times. Exports quintupled. Coal production quintupled, uh, freight traffic, which is train traffic, five and a half times. So, you know, it's like enormous explosion in activity and, and productivity. So, yeah, so the bank blew up and uh, there was contagion in the system. And so people like uh, the Rockefellers and uh, JP Morgan, they stepped in, like they had a lot of cash. They were basically prudent financiers, like they were not all in, like they had reserves kind of like Warren Buffett today like a bunch of reserves uh, and you could that was more justifiable at the time because you had hard money so you could have your reserves in gold and that would gradually go up like there was a slight deflation every year and so yeah so so they started rescuing these companies but of course nothing is for free so they would kind of do it in exchange for equities like you're in distress all right I can I can buy a bunch of your stock at a, at a haircut. I'm going to buy it at 30, 30 cents on the dollar or whatever. And then you're going to live another day and your customers live another day. And so that's how the contagion was stopped. But uh, the public at large was like resentful against these, what they saw as profiteers, like people that profited off the crisis. And so they apparently thought it was a better idea for the government to be like the final backstop and that's how the Federal Reserve was founded. If you look at the original Federal Reserve Act of 1913, the literal first paragraph is talking about the panic of 1907 and what happened and that we need to prevent this from happening again. So what the government is going to do is have this vast, they, they present it as like a dam, like we're going to dam up the river and create a vast reserve of funds so that when there's another crisis, we can be the JP Morgan and we're going to do it out of the kindness of our heart. And, you know, we're going to save these institutions. But of course, what people didn't realize is that that opened the door uh, for the dollar itself to be gradually undermined and, and poisoned and become just a paper certificate. So, so in the end, the cure was way worse than, uh, than that because the, the 1907 crisis only lasted 18 months. Like the stock market almost entirely recovered in 18 months. So there was not like mass unemployment. It wasn't like a Great Depression at all. And that is the nature of crises in a healthy economy. It's like a healthy person 
you get sick and you heal in a matter of months instead of becoming ill for 10 years because there's something constitutionally wrong with you. So I think that's an important lesson is that, you know, if you look at the duration of crises in the fiat era, they're way longer than in the hard money era. And so this is just an important, I think, time to reflect on these things and not to think we're doing something fundamentally wrong. We need new rules. We need new institutions. We need a Federal Reserve of Bitcoin. Like, no, this is just normal. This is just normal. And and Bitcoin has had many of these little crises and we'll have many little crises in the future. We don't need to really change anything. If anything, we just need to educate ourselves better and other people better. And that's it. Build better technology, maybe. Right. And so we can certainly see there's an inkling of what's going on that maybe there's some similarities. People have been commenting publicly saying uh, Sam Beck, uh, SBF of um, FTX is they're sort of making this analogy that he's like the crypto JP Morgan that he and FTX have offered a loan for BlockFi and uh, fifty million dollars. Yeah, yeah. And so, in a similar sense, there's this argument going there. That, and then, is there going to be a parallel in the future that, let's say, the government may use this crisis or other actors may use that crisis to say, "Oh, look, see these crypto kids, they can't." you know, manage their own thing. So look, me, the responsible, mature adults in the room have to come in and et cetera, right? You can, we can all sort of see how that argument is, is uh, going to be played out, of course, even if we disagree with that. Um, and so I think it is important to point out how Bitcoin is different, right? And as you, as you did do in your thread as well, uh, how, in what ways is the Bitcoin world different to that? Yeah, I mean, what we have that they didn't have back in 1907 is um, is ex- very high auditability features. You know, you can selectively make things transparent in the Bitcoin space. And so, for example, collateral collateral can be monitored, and and you all you know it's always there. You don't have to ch- just rely on the word of somebody else. And it it's not like magic that you know, but it's it's a factor. It's something that can help. Uh, it's not a, a silver bullet, I think. And uh, because it's true, you know, that you don't, if there's overlapping claims on the same Bitcoin like that, it's a bit tricky. Like presumably if people pool their insights, maybe then it's for cryptographers to figure out whether we can do that. But there's definitely, for sure, there's much more possible than with gold. Like auditing gold is a nightmare. I think the last official kind of a somewhat of an audit of the Federal Reserve was like 1953, uh, you know, uh, sorry, Fort Knox, like if the, the gold. So auditing gold is really, really hard, much easier to do with Bitcoin. You can do it from a distance. You don't need to physically be there. It's so much better. So technology-wise, that is a factor. Multi-sig, of course, allows us to not only reliably store Bitcoin, but not have to trust on one counterparty. Like we're, I think in the future, we're going to not have custodians so much as we're going to have key banks, like banks that are known to store keys, and then they will collaborate to uh, store particular pools of Bitcoin in a multi-sig fashion. So then you can have a bank in Australia and a bank in uh, in the US and a bank in South Africa all collaborating, securing the same multi-sig wallet. Um, so it just, it just ensures against a lot of political risk. And so the fact that Bitcoin is so, oh, well, maybe that's another factor. Bitcoin is digital. So back in 1913, pretty much you have the United States as a country, it would be so cost prohibitive for gold, physical gold to leave the continent. So the risk of the gold fleeing abroad was very low. And so they could be sure like, you know, we can do this, like, what are they going to do, right? I mean, the money already is in the banks physically. So we can just require the banks to hold a certain uh, amount, certain percentage of their gold with the Federal Reserve, so that we can come and, you know, rescue, um, the banks that are not doing well, which, by the way, isn't that crazy? Like, sorry, but just to make the point, like you're going to reward the worst actors, like banks that are lending intermediaries that are responsible. Like, for example, and not that I'm promoting them, but like uh, I think, for example, maybe like a Genesis Capital seems to be coming out of this crisis relatively unscathed. There's a few examples of companies in Bitcoin that have barely been hurt by the three, by the whole, you know, this whole panic. Uh, shouldn't they be rewarded by the market, right? Uh, but so instead, what you do with the central bank is that you start subsidizing the worst actors who take the biggest risks. And, and then you get a really rotten system. 
So anyway, so I think that the fact that Bitcoin is is digital and there's always the risk of the capital just fleeing abroad, uh, even if it's technically still owned by U.S. citizens, I think that is going to also prevent some of these wild ideas of like, let's just pool together all the Bitcoin. Right. And so it's certain technological aspects and arguably even maybe a cultural aspect of Bitcoin, this whole not your keys, not your coins culture, I think, because what are the things that help governments drive us down into this pathway that we're in with fiat currency? One of them, as argued even by, by many Austrians, but Guido Holzman makes the argument really well in the ethics of money production, is this idea that with government legal tender laws, they force us to consider the IOUs all as equivalent. Yes. So as an example, if you have an account at Wells Fargo and I have an account at Chase or whatever, we treat all our IOUs the same because of legal tender laws. And so there's maybe a bit of an argument there, right? So I guess now let's transpose that into Bitcoin land. It would be like saying you have an IOU at, uh, let's say you have some coins at, uh, you know, Cash App and I have some coins at Swan uh, and treating them all the same. But in, but in a self-custody culture, you don't have to trust that the IOUs are the same. And we don't treat them differently, right? We don't say, oh, I'm assessing, you know, whichever lender, like Celsius as a, as a bad actor. So I'm going to, in my mind, I'm going to value their Bitcoins below par, right? I'm not going to treat the Bitcoins yeah. out there, right? Uh, but let's say it's a reputable actor. Okay, I'm going to hold them at par in my mind mentally. Like, oh, okay, coins held here are one-to-one. So I think that also plays into it as well, this idea that we should really be more cognizant about where it's an IOU versus it's actually coins that you hold in your wallet, not your keys, not your coins. Yeah, and we saw this in the last days of Mangox, you know, when, when the market was starting to feel like, oh, this thing is going really wrong before the official, you know, the official bankruptcy, the official failure, uh, you saw that Bitcoins there were trading at a discount. So you, you, they were cheaper because they were Gox coins. They were locked into Mangox and you just didn't know if you would ever see them again. We, and then interestingly, this is just a, a side note, but interestingly, actually Bitcoin traded at a premium on Mangox before that. And the reason was that um, people that had coins stuck there, they wanted them out. and But they, they, they were, um, Gox was, was throttling the amount of Bitcoins that were allowed to go out. And so what you would do is you would sell them on the platform and get your dollars out. And so because a lot of people were, it's like literally the showing that people were trying to exit. They were all like kind of like, you know, pushing towards the exit. And so they were bidding against each other to get dollars for the Bitcoin on the Gox platform and then get the dollars out. And of course that failed too. But, but it's just interesting to see how if you allow a market to operate, there's so much information communicated by the price. Yeah. So I think maybe that's really the lesson is to basically... People need to assess uh, which parties and companies they work with. And if a company goes under because they did some bad risk management or they took the wrong risk, then they should be allowed to fail, right? Uh, I, I think yeah, I've probably... always advocated for, for diversification. And, and I don't mean shit coins. I just mean like diversify the ways in which you store your Bitcoin. Because we are fallible individually, but also institutions are fallible. And so, you know, just consider that, like, you know, uh, I think that's probably one of the wisest things you can do uh, if uh, if you own Bitcoin. Right. And so for listeners who are thinking, OK, are we staring down the battle barrel of a long bear market or do you think it's going to be a shorter one? That, OK, it might take some time. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't you know, I don't think this is going to be a protracted uh, bear market. Like, I mean, definitely it's probably obvious, but there, there's definitely been uh, let me pull up this. Um, this chart for myself definitely there has been like the hubris is flushed out right i mean people are not like uh, over overconfident anymore which is always good um also the the actual leverage is being flushed out like uh somebody messaged me that they were um they were managing uh, of you know funds back in 2008 and in he he said in three days all the leverage was flushed out and it's because it's so contagious it just like cascades and so there's only it's only that only lasts so long. Uh, I do think miners need to capitulate. That'll go slower because they don't get their margin call right away. They get like this slow trickle of like, you know, they have to pay every month. So that that can take longer. Um, but then Bitcoin is so small still. It's less than a trillion dollars. And, uh, and we're just seeing the assassination of every single asset class globally. Now, of course, stocks are down. 
So people are like, okay, if I sell my stocks, like what the hell do I buy, right? Or if I want to diversify, what the hell do I do? And uh, I think the thesis of, you know, the Wall Street types of the world is, okay, the Fed is tightening, so we're risk off. This is all risk off, risk off. So just dollar-based assets, um, very short-term, you know, maybe very short-term bonds or something like that. But I think the market is underestimating how quickly the Fed can change and pivot. And I think we're already seeing signals from the Fed. I think I want to like claim the hashtag Powell pivot because I think it's going to happen. And we'll all talk about like Powell, how Powell has pivoted that he goes from, uh, you know, playing the hard, hard line, pretending to be Volcker, but he can't to like more soft talk because the White House is, is, um, exerting pressure on uh, on the fed because people are hurting because of inflation and everything else that the politicians clearly are saying like hey you know it's 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 bad enough that we have inflation you guys are going to create a recession on top of it like no we have elections coming up like 23 2024 is elections so i think they're gonna turn dovish uh, you know maybe i'm not no fed expert so this is just pure you know amateur speculation but uh, I think maybe a few more mild hikes and then they're going to call it a day. There's gonna there's some stuff blowing up in Europe today. Like the banks are in terrible shape in Europe. Uh, the Eurozone keeps printing money. Like they're not easing. Uh, sorry, they're not tightening. Japan is going crazy printing money now. Japanese yen has dropped below 20-year support on the charts. So I think, I, I think uh, the Widowmaker trade is finally paying off. Like there's finally people that are shorting Japanese bonds, they, they, they always lost money the past 30, 40 years, but now is the time. And, uh, and it's, it's I, so I think Japan is, is going down. So basically, the dollar is the last man standing. And uh, I, I just don't see this tightening continue for very much longer, like maybe a bit. But, but we're also even seeing U.S. government bonds yield spiking. So they're going to have to ease more pretty soon. Anyway, so that's that's my take is that Bitcoin we're like in a way it's great that we're first. Like we're the first to have a serious correction. All the leverage is flushed out. I think that's kind of how I opened this uh this interview is like this is just so healthy. It's like we're going to be so laser focused uh and we're going to have a massive rally and uh I don't know when it's going to start, but I suspect that this whole crisis will be over probably in in 12 to 18 months, you know, maybe two two years tops, but it just doesn't make sense to me that we were barely like 2019 was still bear market, right? So like in what in two we only had a bull market for two years, like in an environment where central banks are printing money up the wazoo, where inflation is starting to get to close to 10 percent. Like no, like I don't think we're gonna have a protracted bear market at all. This is just a this is just a panic. This is not a, a depression or a prolonged bear market. Right. And certainly it does seem that most people are confident that Bitcoin is just taking a a breather and they still are bullish on Bitcoin long term as store of value. I think it's fair to say that most people uh, who are holding Bitcoin or in this broader system, that they're seeing something like that. And so, yeah, I think I think that's probably the likely outcome. So we'll just have to uh, wait and see. But I think I think you're right. I think it's going to be maybe a little bit more of a waiting for the minor capitulation and then sort of chilling sideways for a little bit before uh, the stackers. Uh, and this is a great opportunity for those who are stacking. So, I mean, to, to, to be fair to like just kind of the gods of, uh, of um, you know, odds and statistics, like if this contagion continues and if we see like, like a Coinbase, if we see a bank run on a Coinbase and it turns out that they don't have what it takes, they don't have enough coin, and then we could go a bunch lower. Then we could really challenge ten thousand, five thousand dollar Bitcoin or something. Like I'm not saying for a long time, but I think briefly we could see, uh, kind of like in 2013 when Gox went under. Like we had a rally to 260, and then we still went down to 80 bucks because um, because my Gox went bankrupt. So if this rabbit hole is deeper than we thought then, uh, yeah, you know, all bets are off in terms of how low we could spike. But even then, you know, there's so much Bitcoin that's cold stored. I think we're only, if we're talking about the exchange ecosystem and stuff, the financialized Bitcoins, maybe we're only talking about one or two million Bitcoin. Like there's just no more than that that is in um, in, in kind of like semi-hot wallets. Uh, the rest is just cold stored or lost. 
So, you know, there's a limit to, and so if that, if you think about it that way, it's like, okay, let's say there's only 1 million Bitcoin circulating uh, in the financial system. Well, then if Bitcoin spikes down, let's say it drops to uh, $5,000. Well, then you could, you could scoop up all those Bitcoin with $5 billion, right? You could just kind of set a bid order, like, you know, work with some large uh, prime broker who has access to all the trading desks in Bitcoin and just put a firm bid at $5,000 Bitcoin and you just, you gobble up every single Bitcoin that becomes available at that price. So $5 billion is not a lot of money. So, you know, that, that, so that's why I'm like, I don't think we're going to go below 10,000, even in a bad case, you know, we could dip below it briefly, but I don't believe in a sustained bear market under 10,000. Gotcha. Yeah. Interesting to see. And so then I guess, Let's, uh, let, I guess let's leave it there then. So um, really interesting commentary. And I think it gives us all some things to think about in terms of how the industry and ecosystem develops, how much should we care about technologies as an example, proof of reserves, um, tech, you know, the culture of not your keys, not your coins. Uh, I think these are all, uh, and arguably it's easier to sell that message after a moment like this, right? Like just like after Mt. Gox's collapse, it was then it's a lot easier for people to get the message about self-custody of Bitcoin. Um, so I suppose we'll leave it there then. And um, listeners, go and find Tour online. You can find him on Twitter at Tour Demista and anywhere else you want people to find you. No, that works. Okay, fantastic. Well, thank you again for joining me, Tour. Thanks, fun. My pleasure. If you're interested in the links for the thread that Tor wrote or the Panic of 1907, you can find all the links as usual at my website in the show notes, stefanlevera.com slash 387. Thanks for listening, and I will see you in the Citadels.